Okay, let's go before the Lord in prayer again and ask for his blessing. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you, honor you for the full salvation. We thank you for the reconciliation, for the righteousness that you have freely given us. We thank you for the eternal hope that all the redeemed have in Christ. We pray now that you speak to us. Speak to me and speak to your people. Let them hear the eternal truths, who you are, who our Lord Jesus Christ is, and what he has done for his people. We honor you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning again, one and all, and everybody who is joining us and shall join us. This morning we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. There's no need to hurry in God's business because time belongs to him. And we're going to read through the text. It's very important that we read through the text because, say, if you are listening to the message driving, you won't be able to open the Bible and read it. So I'm going to be reading the text for you. <laughs> That's helpful. This is what the word of the Lord says, First Samuel 2, 12 to 36. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was, was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there, also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Verse 17, therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he had everything his sons did to all Israel, 
and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people, nor my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Verse 26, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and man. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar to burn incense and wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me? to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that it will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. And that's the word of the Lord. A mouthful, a lot of stuff. <laughs> we have three titles. We could have five or seven. No old man left in the house. No old man. That's my main title. No old man left in the house. Number two, the sins of the priesthood. The sins of the priesthood. 
And number three, the priesthood of the law and its weaknesses. The priesthood of the law and its weaknesses. I pray this morning that those who oppose the teaching of the gospel from the Old Testament stories would pray for themselves, be humbled by God, and come and listen to the testimony of Christ Jesus. Because God could not and would not record 36 verses in a chapter just to tell you about the sins of a certain man by the name of Eli. There's no way. God knows way too many things. He knows all things. And so if he has selected a story, he means to communicate something more than the shenanigans of some two guys who were the sons of Eli. Okay? All the writing that God has recorded for us was and is in service to the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we should and are reading it correctly, it should give us the hope and joy of salvation. And the ministry of the Lord is the gospel ministry. In our last message from this chapter of First Samuel, we had a message titled The Christology of Hannah's Prayer. And rather than exalt Hannah, the person, and create a cultish figure, out of her, we saw that it was actually the Lord Jesus in view of her prayer. And we will not change our hermeneutic, our way of reading these stories to make peace with unbelievers or people who don't see it. <laughs> because once you see it, you always see it. Once you see it, you always see it. And once you know how to see it, you always expect that someone who is coming would bring the same testimony from the different scriptures. Sorry. So we have a lot of gospel testimony today that if I had time, like if you'd give me four to five hours, <laughs> I would have wanted to do about three messages just from this section. Even as I was reading, I was like, oh, I missed that. <laughs> but I'll do as much as the Lord will give me ability to share in a single message. And the other details, I'll work them out in future messages if the Lord deems it. But my purpose is to give you understanding of what is going on in the light of what you already know. I'm not preaching anything that you don't know. You just don't know how that relates to this story. So this is for you to have a proper way to read and understand how these many things relate to the Lord Jesus and your salvation, because you are also in the telling of the story. And with that, we will immediately go into our text to discover the gospel, and we we'll begin at verse 12, 1 Samuel 
chapter 2, which says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. The two sons of Eli were Hophni and Phinehas. The Bible says they were sons of Belial, and that means they were corrupt. They had no sense of righteousness, especially in the calling that God had called them to. They were Levites. Thus were priests of the Most High God. And for background, this is the commentary of what happened or was happening during the time of the judges, when the judges were ruling over Israel, when there was no king in Israel. There was a time that Israel did not have a king and it was being ruled by the judges. This is the testimony of God in Judges 21, verse 25. Judges 21, verse 25. The text is, In those days, there was no king in Israel. And so, what happened? Everybody was very righteous. <laughs> no Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. And Eli was both high priest and judge in this time. And the behavior of his two sons was commentary of the spiritual condition of all of Israel. That is, Everyone did or was doing what was right in their own eyes. Like we are seeing even in our own time. We have become, as it were, so civilized, so educated, so progressive, so spiritual, that we have lost the definition or difference between things. <laughs> we know not even the difference between a man and a woman. Well, if you ask me, that is not education. That is not civilization. That is not making progress. And surely that is not spiritual. It is being the sons of Belial. It's corruption. But Eli was a moral man. But there were two issues with these two sons. They had developed the habit of appropriating to themselves that which belonged to God. Appropriate to themselves. The very best of things that belonged to God. And in the process, messing up the typology of the Lord Jesus in how they handled or mishandled the sacrifices. And secondly, they also were engaged in some ritual fornication right within the camp of the tabernacle. 
in accordance with the practices of the Canaanites. Let us hear the text again, starting from verse 18 and following. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man of offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So the priest would take for himself portions that were not allocated to him or before the proper time as God had commanded to be done. In Leviticus 6 and 7 and other portions of the Old Testament, God gave stipulations of how the different sacrifices the trespass offerings, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings were to be handled. And what portions were to be given to Aaron and his sons, what we called the priestly shares or portions, or portions given to the offerer. If you brought a sacrifice, you also had a share in the sacrifice. But after the process had been completed, would you then get your share? And this is what Deuteronomy also says to the matter of the Levites and their allocations. Deuteronomy 18. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy 18, 1 to 5. Moses recorded and said, The priests, the Levites, or the tribe of Levi, shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. And that means they would not have a land allocation as the other tribes. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. Therefore, shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer sacrifice. Whether it is bull or sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder, the cheeks and the stomach. The first fruits of your grain and your new wine and oil and the first of the fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So the priesthood was there for ministering to the Lord in gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people and teaching Israel the proper way to approach God. That you just don't show up before God without the God-appointed sacrifice. 
You just don't flip-flop your way into God's presence. <laughs> you need the God-appointed sacrifice to open the way for you. So this is what the ministry of the Levites was supposed to be doing. So this is very, the very matter that the sons of Eli were violating. But for a gospel testimony, otherwise it would not have been recorded, recorded for us. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 2, verses 15 and 16. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest. For he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Pay attention to this. This is very important. This is what God has said or had said should be done with respect to the offering of fat. There's a protocol, there's an ordering to the way that things were supposed to be done. Let's go to Leviticus 7 to hear what God said about fat. Leviticus 7, 22 to 25. All these are gospel statements. Leviticus 7, 22 to 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, you shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. And the fat of an animal that dies naturally, and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way, but you shall not, or, but you shall by no means eat it. You shall not eat that which has been torn by wild beasts that has not gone through the process of offering, through the burnt offering. We shall not eat the fat of any sacrifice and of any animal that dies a natural death. And what happens to anyone who does it? Verse 25. For whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. So whoever does that is in serious trouble. That person shall be cut off from his people, and that means shall be put to death. And what were the sons of Eli doing? They were doing exactly that. They were eating the fat. <laughs> Let's hear again from the person who tried to restrain them from this sin. Verse 16 of 1 Samuel 2. 
And if the man said to him, to the priest's servant, they should really burn the fat first. Then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would answer them, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Why did God emphasize on this ordering? The ordering that the fat, the fat of the offering must be given to him only. Belonged to God. Then offered first as a burnt offering. The fat had to be offered first as a burnt offering. And only to be given to God. And then the people, in the sequence of things, would take as much of their heart's desire of the remainder of the offering. <laughs> First, the sacrifices represented the Lord Jesus. And for this reason, God has instructed Israel to not bring an animal for sacrifice, for offering. That was lame, sick, blind, stolen, or had any blemishes of any kind. And the fat then represented the richness. If you've been or you've seen the carcass of an animal that was well fed, it is so much fat. That tells you that it was well taken care of. So the fat represented the richness or the quality of the sacrifice. That is why the father in the story of the prodigal son killed a fattened calf to receive and celebrate his lost son. That fattened calf that makes reconciliation and peace between the father and the son that makes the prodigal son accepted <laughs> is the Lord Jesus. The fat represents the riches and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is the sweet aroma to God when burned in the fire of God's judgment on Christ. It pleased the Lord to crush him because of that. And the Lord Jesus Christ must be offered first in sacrifice before anyone can eat what is left, before anyone can have title to what is left of the sacrifice. In other words, before they can partake of the benefits of salvation. And that means atonement, propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath and justice must be made first by that which God considers to be rich 
before anyone could legally partake of the benefits of the sacrifice. The Christ has to be offered first before you and I can come and partake of the benefits of what Christ did. And that means unless and until the Lord Jesus Christ died, there was nothing for us to partake of in the matter of salvation. We had nothing to eat. We had nothing to eat. And even in the Passover story of Israel leaving their bondage in Egypt, God said, well, you kill the lamb. You take the blood. You put it on the lentils of the doors. And then you roast the remainder and eat it. But you have to shed the blood. It has to cover you first. And then you eat it. And that's why the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, centers the whole transaction of salvation on death, redemption, reconciliation, justification, adoption. It's all centered on the cross, the death of Christ. Because without Death, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no cancellation of sin. And where there's no cancellation of sin, there's no partaking of the benefits that God has given us in Christ. So the fat must be burned to God first. The Christ must be sacrificed first. And then, as the man said, then you may take as much as your heart desires, as much as your heart desires. Now we eat as much as our heart desires. We cannot exhaust what God has given us in Christ now that he has been offered. And that means also, by implication, you cannot outsin the benefits that Christ has given you. You never run a deficit account when it comes to righteousness because of your sin. But unless and until the Lord Jesus died, all the matters of salvation were just in promises. When you read the Old Testament, God is always promising that he's going to bring his faithful servant. He's going to bring his faithful servant in the name of David. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to accomplish something. It's always Look into the future. Those promises could not be possessed as to be consumed, as to be eaten, until the fat had been burned, had been offered to God. In other words, before God had been satisfied. That is why the writer of Hebrews says, of the Old Testament saints, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, have seen these things. So, that's Hebrews eleven thirteen. The Old Testament saints did not 
received them, but they saw them from afar. They saw the sacrifice, but they did not consume it because it had not yet been given to God. I'll give an example. Hopefully it's appropriate. If you have a nursing mother, you have an infant, two weeks old baby, you cannot make them a hamburger to feed them. The mother has to eat first, process the food, and then it comes as milk. If the child is going to live, right? And God is saying something similar. That the Christ must be offered first before we, the infants, can benefit from what he has done. He has to be offered first because he is the bread from heaven. We are not eating the flour here. We're not eating raw flour. <laughs> it has to be bagged. And the baking of bread uses what? It uses heat. The flour has to go through suffering of sorts. And so the Christ had to go as a burnt offering on the cross. On the cross. Do you understand the connection? Right. Let's keep going. So the giving and distribution of the promises were 100% contingent on the death of Christ as the testator of the covenant. And once the Christ has been given, then all the promises must also be given. Because when you have a will and last testament, the distribution clause comes into effect by death. As soon as the death of the person has been proven, then the benefits also are distributed according to the will and last testament. So anyone who tries to take these things before the death of the testator, they are taking it by force. It's unlawful. And God says they must be cut off because they are not respecting God's schedule of events. That's the issue here. They are not following the ordering of things. It's not like God really needed to eat some fat. <laughs> God does not eat food. He's teaching. And so, because they failed to understand this, God says in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 2, Therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Men abhorred the Lord Jesus Christ. They abhorred the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the offering of the Lord. And that's why God is angry. Hebrews 10 gives us commentary of what these guys did. God's interpretation of what was happening. It's not limited to them alone. But here's a commentary from Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. The writer of Hebrews says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy 
who he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. The sons of Eli had trampled the Son of God underfoot, the blood of the Son of God that was in the shadow, and insulted the Spirit of grace who testified of such things through their ministry. We keep going. The Holy Spirit says, well, we're going to have an intermission in the development of the story. We're going to have a Hannah Samuel intermission and her children. And I believe that the intermission in the story was there to give us a contrast of the two families, the family of Eli and that of Hannah. Essentially, a preview of the contrast of the old covenant as represented by the priesthood of Eli and his two sons and the new covenant as represented by Samuel, the Nazarite priest from God who came by way of an oath, who came by way of dedication to the Lord as the Lord Jesus came by way of an oath and also by dedication. So we have a contrast of the two families, a contrast of the two covenants. And so we are taught this now in verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord. You see the contrast? But in contrast to the sons of Eli, (laughs) but Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. And that is the picture of the Lord Jesus doing his father's business. If you remember Mary and Joseph, they went back to Jerusalem looking for Jesus after the Passover feast. They thought Jesus had been lost in the crowd. (laughs) They were looking for God lost in the crowd. They obviously were concerned for him as their child. But here the conversation, let's go to Luke 2, Luke 2, 46 to 50. Luke says, now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So boy, Samuel ministering to the Lord, even as a child, teenage years, about 12 years of age, 12, 15 years, the Lord Jesus here, still very young, about 12 years old, and doing his father's business. So Samuel 
is preaching his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to the New Testament. Verse 19, verse Samuel 2, Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with the husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Hannah used to make Samuel a little robe and bring it to him year by year. Hannah's, Hannah was skilled, it looks like. She was skilled with her hands. This was a court to go on top of his other clothes. And we're told that she would do this year after year and the offering of the yearly sacrifice. And what is that little rob that God wants us to know about? That cot that Samuel would get from his mother in the work of his ministry to the Lord. I believe that was prophetic of the clothing of the Lord Jesus. That is, his adding of human nature to himself. It is not like Samuel was naked when he was ministering to the Lord. And it is not like Jesus was naked. The robe of Samuel was covering his inner garments as the flesh of the Lord Jesus was covering or veiled his glory. His inner garments. <laughs> the inner garments of glory that he revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He veiled, he unveiled himself to Peter, James, and John. But ordinarily, they would only see the outer garments that covered the inner garments. See that the court made for Samuel was in respect of the yearly sacrifice. It was not for his birthday. <laughs> By the way, it was my birthday yesterday, and I'm still taking presents. If you didn't send me a present, you lose your salvation. <laughs> the court made for Samuel was in respect of the yearly sacrifice. That is the day of atonement that happened once a year in the Passover, which sacrifices or feasts looked to the cross of the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord Jesus veiled his outer garment of the flesh was also to this end. It was the fulfillment of it in his death of the cross. As the Passover lamb on the day of atonement. It should be obvious that at this point, Hannah is also a type of God who has a son. Pay attention to this. 
Hannah, at this point, has a son who has been dedicated to God, to minister to God. Samuel is ministering to God in gifts and sacrifice. And so the humanity of Christ was the garment that was weaved for Christ by God. And so we are told that the Lord Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And also, I'm going to make a qualification. I'm going to pick up space. I'm going to pick up speed. Because we have a lot of things to say. But I want to deliver it this way. Slowly. Anyone who has been listening to our messages should have heard by now or know that a single person can carry more than one picture or type. And they go in and out of the type. Depending on how God is moving the gospel details. And so you should not remain rigid. Once we tell you that, oh, Hannah was a type of Christ here, don't think she was only a type of Christ. She was also a type of God the Father because she has a son who was born by an oath and dedicated to the Lord to do the ministry, right, in the temple. So God is always moving and shifting the camera in the story. So you also have to be flexible and versatile as the details change. Verse 20. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. Here, Eli's blessing. He prayed that God would give Elkanah and Hannah descendants for the loan that was given to the Lord. In dedicating Samuel to the Lord as a Nazarite, it was as if they had lost a son and so they would still have need of having more children. But what is that saying? The son who has been dedicated to God is Samuel, and that means Christ Jesus. And if Jesus is dedicated to his father's business, what then happens? Are there going to be any other children to populate the house of Hannah? To populate the house of Christ? To populate the house of God? To populate the New Testament? Because Hannah also represents the testimony of the New Testament. So if the one child who has been given to establish the New Testament has been given to God, who's going to be in that house? Christ has been given as God's son to establish the New Testament in his blood. But he has a house. It's an empty house. How is he going to fill the house? Eli says, God bless you with more children for the sake, for the sake of the one who was dedicated to God. That is God's blessing on the New Testament of Christ because that is the only covenant 
by which more children are born and are brought to God's house. The New Testament is populated with children only on account of the Christ who was dedicated to God even unto the death of the cross. The New Testament has people in it, not because of their good behavior, not because of their good works, but on account of the son who was dedicated to God. And so once the son has been dedicated, then you're in. That's the only way of entering into this house. Verse 21. Let's hear if we are thinking is true. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So the Lord visited Hannah and she bore three sons and two daughters. And that to me adds up to five. And that is the number of grace. Five children now in Hannah's house. Of course, he, she has Samuel. But remember, Samuel has already been taken out of the house and given to the Lord. So the children that remain in Hannah's house, that she bears, are those that come only when the Lord visits her. <laughs> and that means the children who populate the New Testament are those who are born of God. Born of God. The New Testament is populated by children of grace. That's why Hannah had five children after Samuel. Populated by the children of Sarah. We are children of grace. Hebrews 2, 11 to 15. Let's see how the house of Hannah was populated by God. Hebrews 2, 11 to 15. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I'll declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I'll sing praise to you. And, I'll, and again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, here I am in the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The children are of flesh and blood by nature. And so the Christ has to join himself to them. So he likewise shared in the same flesh and blood 
That is why Hannah made sure to keep making a court to bring to Samuel every year. Lest he had outgrown the one that he had. The high priest sharing in the same flesh as those that he represented, but without sin. So the house of God, the new covenant, the house of Hannah has been populated because of the Christ who came and joined himself to us, joined to our nature as flesh and blood, and reconciled us to God and brought us to God. That's how it works. Okay? So that was part one of the message. I'm going to go to part two of it. God judges the house of Eli. And now go to the matter of what happens to the law. Because that's the conversation. Because whenever we talk salvation, we're going to have conversation around the law, the function of the law, the purpose of the law, that is the continuity or discontinuity of the law. Many argue and say, believers, the redeemed, are still under the ministry of Eli and his sons. Let's see what God was anticipating would happen to the law from this text. And for that, we'll go to verse 22. First Samuel 2. Now, Eli was very old, and he had everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Eli was old, certainly above 90 years, and his capacities were compromised by age. And he heard about the shenanigans and debauchery of his two sons. Verse 23. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. So Eli may have had some rumors about what the sons were doing and may have just decided to sweep them underneath the carpet. But as we say in Shona, that which has horns cannot be concealed for long. <laughs> you cannot conceal that which has horns. They'll keep growing. And that just pierce through the covering. But now the debauchery had assumed very high proportions that all of Israel seemed to know about it. And we're talking about it. And he said, why do you do such things? They are evil things that I hear people reporting to me. He continued and said, verse 24, No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. Yes, Eli's sons are causing the Lord's people to sin. But what does that mean? It is telling us, the problem with the law and its priesthood. Because the sons of Eli are just not ordinary people in Israel. They are mediators of the law. 
What is the nature of the priesthood of the law? It presides over a covenant that works with sin. It gives sin power. The power of sin is in the law. You're not going to hear that from the Presbyterians. They never tell you that the power of sin is in the law. They just say, oh, it's the moral law. We have to keep the moral law. No, the power of sin is in the law. And it makes sin more sinful. Romans 7, 7 to 10. Romans 7, 7 to 10. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. So the law is there to discover the sin that lies dormant in you. It arouses it. It gives it strength. It gives it power. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said, Thou shalt not covet. The moment that the law said that, I found myself to be guilty of covetousness. <laughs> I found myself admiring my neighbor's nice new car. <laughs> as soon as the law said to me, Thou shalt not covet that new F-150. But sin taking opportunity. You see, now the connection, this is how they work together. Sin taking opportunity by the commandment. Produced in me all manner of evil desire. I began to covet it more. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Apart from me giving you a commandment to do something or not to do something, sin is dead. If I give you a commandment right now, I always give this as a reference. To not blink. Try not to blink. And then I attach life and condemnation to your not blinking. You are already condemned. But before I gave the commandment, you were blinking and you were not condemned for it. But the moment that I attach you're not blinking to eternal life. You're so condemned because you can never stop blinking, which means you can never stop sinning. You cannot stop sinning as long as you have this flesh. That's what Paul is saying. So apart from any commandment not to do something, sin is dead. You cannot be condemned for something that you have not been told not to do. Verse 9, still Romans I was alive once without the law. I thought I was okay. I was just kicking it. I didn't have any sense of condemnation. I didn't have any sense of hopelessness in anything. I thought I was a righteous person. But when the commandment came, sin revived. The commandment revived sin. It resuscitated sin back to life and gave it strength. And I died, it condemned me. Just one commandment. Just covetousness. You don't need the ten. The ten commandments are too many commandments, people. There are too many commandments. Just the one covenant, the one commandment is enough to send you to hell. 
just as what happened with Adam. The day that you shall eat from this tree, you are so dead. <laughs> and the commandment which was to bring life, the commandment which I thought was supposed to bring life to me, I found that it brought death. I thought the Ten Commandments were good. They were supposed to make me a righteous person. But they're the very ones that brought death because they are the ministry of death. They are the ministry of condemnation. The Ten Commandments are not the ministry of life. Yeah? So if you want people to be dead, to be condemned, don't give them Ten Commandments. Just give them one. Just make up one commandment for them. Just one commandment for them to follow and attach life to it. Give yourself the one commandment, a simple one. I'm going to brush my teeth every morning at seven for two minutes. Time it. See how far you go in the week, you'll be condemned by your own very commandment. Right? <laughs> the point is, the law was given to bring death, never to give life. And yet that priesthood of the law is not able to help those that sin under it. Due to the weakness of the human flesh of both its priesthood and those that it represents. The law had a very weak priesthood. It was presided over by people who were sinners, who were trying to represent other sinners. So that is the very nature of the covenant. And so also, Paul says the law was added that transgressions may increase. So the more commandments I give you, the more transgressions you're going to make. So the law causes God's people to transgress because of their sin. And that is not a good report. So that is what Eli is saying. Oh, God is saying through Eli to the matter of the ministry of the law that the law is not helping people. It is causing them to transgress even more. The scriptures will vindicate me. Let's go to Eli again in verse 25 of 1 Samuel 2. This is where my sermon actually begins. <laughs> I like for you. Eli says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? And that is the question that is not being asked faithfully in much of what is called church, much of what is called gospel preaching. That is the one question that you have to answer between now and your meeting with God. Eli says, if it is just a matter of sinning against one another, man to man, that can easily be settled by God between men. That's a small issue. If Sean owes me 20 bucks, God will speak to it and he'll pay me back my 30 bucks. I'll put interest for 10 bucks. <laughs> but moving from the lesser to the greater, see the movement of the argument. From the lesser, man to man, to the greater, sinning against God. 
Eli says, but if a man sins against the Lord, who shall intercede for him? Who will stand for you before God? For God to hear you and to forgive your sin, to make it right between you and God. That is a much higher question and the most important question to ever ask of a sinner. Because we have sinned against God in one way or another. Who shall intercede for you? And religion has a million answers to that question. Your works will intercede for you. Your prayers will intercede for you. Maybe the Pope or Mary, the mother of Jesus, the dead saints, or you just have to be a very sincere and spiritual person. (laughs) Those are all answers to that question. But are they sufficient answers? In Jesus' understanding, he would come and ask the same question in a different way and say in Matthew 16, 26, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In other words, everything that this world has to give, the best of it, is not enough to make an exchange for your soul from condemnation. However much money Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates combine all of that, you can't exchange for the soul of a rat if it needed redemption. That's what Jesus said. You can gain the whole world, but whatever you have in value here, even the whole world, is not enough to exchange you from condemnation to justification. And so he now puts it clearly. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus is an accountant. Profit, gain, loss, exchange. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what will you give in exchange for your soul? Now that you have discovered, you have sinned against God. What is Eli saying? He is speaking of the need of a mediator that God hears. A mediator that God accepts. He is speaking to the need of the Godman, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be your mediator. Because a mediator must be found if such a person is going to be delivered from going down to the pit of condemnation. Who shall intercede? For you implies that you cannot be the one talking to God because you have no ability to talk to him. You have no right to talk to him. He cannot hear you. God does not hear sinners. The blind Man in John 9 said that, right? This man is not a sinner because God would not, does not hear sinners. God does not hear sinners. 
God does not hear sinners. It's not saying God does not hear what they're saying. It's saying God does not accept what they're saying so as to make any transaction with them. But God hears us as sinners because in Christ we are not sinners. In Christ we have the righteousness of God. And so on that basis alone, he hears us. We shall intercede to negotiate peace with him for you. You need a representative and acceptable person to speak to God's anger, to God's justice on your behalf. You need a God-appointed mediator to stand in your place. That is Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. And if Jesus is telling the truth about everything he claimed himself to be, then there's absolutely no other viable way to come to God. Jesus is so very narrow-minded. He is the most narrow-minded person to ever walk on planet Earth. (laughs) And I say that in a very positive way. He is saying, I am exclusively it. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the mediator. That's what Eli is saying. Nevertheless, let's go back to our verse. I think it's verse 19, right? Verse 25. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. I showed this text to some sister in Tennessee some 10 years ago, and she was blown away by it. This very text. The majority of professing Christians have never seen or heard of this verse. You have to underline this. The matter of cause and effect is very important if we are going to tell the truth on Christ. What is God saying by this? He is saying repentance is a gift of God and is caused by him alone. Because God desires not to condemn the person in whom he causes repentance to the truth. If God does not desire your salvation, desire your repentance to the truth of salvation, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can be done to cause it to anyone. You could be sent to prison, hard labor, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. No repentance still. You come out just as hardened as you were, if not more. If God desires repentance, the side B of it, there's absolutely nothing that will stand in the way, for he will accomplish all his good pleasure if God wants you. Because he marked you out for salvation, gave you to Christ, Christ made payment for you. You are coming, oh, you are coming. (laughs) Oh, you are coming. Kicking and screaming, yes, but you are coming. Let us hear more on this matter. Of course, in effect, in the matter of salvation. Because it is contested by many who claim that human beings have a free will to receive or reject 
salvation. Even if God desires to save them or to receive it and cause themselves to be saved even if God does not will it. There's a huge section among professing Christians who say salvation is not entirely of God's doing. He has given us a free will because he loves a nice open relationship. <laughs> so we have to decide if we love to have a relationship with him or not so we can reject or accept it. It's just ultimately up to us. Did the sons of Eli have a free will to repent? To heed their father's voice? Yes or no? What did God say? He said they did not heed the voice of their father. Why? Because they were so stubborn. Because they exercised their free will. No, the text says because God desired to put them to death. He hardened them because he wanted to kill them. And so they did not heed their father's voice. And that means Eli's sons had no power to do otherwise. And the good news with that is, if you're one of those people who believe the truth, God did not desire your condemnation. That's what it comes down to. It is his doing. He did not desire to kill you. Let us hear some more cause and effect teaching from Jesus in John 10. Cause and effect. What comes before what? And what causes or who causes what to happen? John 10, 24 to 28. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are just some very stubborn Armenians. <laughs> no. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I say to you. Many people have never heard of this Jesus. This Jesus, a lot of people have never heard of him. This Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus that is being preached. Jesus does sound very mean. Very rude. Not because he's rude, but because he's telling the truth. But did you hear the cause and effect of faith and repentance and election? Because Jesus ties things to election. The free willers will come and say to us, God wants to serve everyone. He really does want to serve everyone. He does not want anyone to perish. So they go to 2 Peter 39 and take it out of context. And those whom he chose, are they whom, sorry, 
Yes, let me continue with that. And those that he chose are they who chose him first. So he elects and serves only those who decide for Jesus. In other words, sinners are made sheep by their believing or because of their believing. And that until they believed, they were not sheep. In other words, gods are made into sheep by believing. That's false teaching. Jesus said those who do not believe are so because they were never his from the start. They were never his from the beginning. They were never given him by the Father. They were never elected, never chosen unto salvation from the beginning. Which means faith does not cause you to become God's child or cause you to be saved. This is going to offend a lot of people. Faith does not cause people to be saved. It proves your identity as sheep, as one who was given to Christ by the Father. It evidences possession of eternal life. Faith in Christ evidences that everything that Christ did was to your benefit. It proves sonship that you are the child of God. It does not make you a child of God. So what do the sheep do? How are they different from the rest, the gods? Verse 27, still in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. His sheep hear his voice as is proclaimed in the gospel message. It's not some inaudible voice that people going about hearing, no. The voice of Christ is the gospel testimony. And they follow him. They follow Christ. They do not follow a preacher. They do not follow a church and say, oh yeah, we are Roman Catholics. Oh, we are Pentecostals. We are the church of Christ. They follow Christ. They follow Christ alone. Their identity is not with a church name or anybody. Their true identity is Christ himself. And where Christ is by his truth is where the sheep gather around. Verse 28, John 10, still, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And some people who are more educated than Jesus who say, of course, you can lose eternal life. You can lose salvation. And yet the Jesus who serves says, no, none can snatch them from my hands. I give them eternal life. So the sheep are given eternal life, freely given, and are protected. None shall snatch them from his hands because God does not desire their condemnation. Eternal life, salvation, righteousness, holiness are things given. They are not things that you work yourself. And if they're given, it implies they're given freely. 
the gift of salvation is not there for you to decide to receive or refuse it because you have no ability to receive it or decide for it or to, re to refuse it. That is all false Armenian teaching. Salvation as a gift is imposed on all who were given to Christ by the Father. It's his choice, not their choice. And some men and women of religion would come and accuse Jesus of cheap grace and easy believism, right, they say, for saying such things. That salvation is that simple. People don't want a gospel that makes salvation very simple. Salvation is very simple, but it can be as complicated as you want it. But it can be as simple that even little children will get it. The simplicity of it is, it is all of grace. It has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with you. As far as the doing of it, it's 100% done by Christ and already accepted. So whatever sin you deal with today, tomorrow, next week, that has nothing to do with your standing before God. Okay? And of course, that's an offense. <laughs> and I love offensive stuff. So here this, I want to take some bidding or do some bidding on the matter of cheap grace because it's an accusation that you're going to receive from people when you tell them about salvation by grace alone. Grace is not cheap. It is free. Because a lot of people be thinking, oh, it's going to say, oh, it is very expensive. Grace is not cheap. It is free. If we are not declaring that grace is free, then we are not declaring God's message. We are believing or teaching another gospel, which is, a, which is not really another gospel, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. The freeness of grace offends many, but it doesn't, not, it doesn't offend the Holy Spirit. Hear what Paul said of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 12. Mark out all these verses because they help you when you come under attack. Because they're going to attack you for saying grace is free. By definition, even. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 2, 11 to 12. Paul says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received all the redeemed, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit does not testify of cheap grace, but of free grace. He testifies in this free grace that we were redeemed by imperishable things. But the high cost of God's grace 
is not so because of your own obedience. Because that's the trick that a lot of these reformed preachers especially, I'm going to mention some names, oh Lord have mercy, the Steve Larsons of this world, the poor washers, they, to their way of thinking, grace is made more valuable by our obedience. That's what gives the proper price tag to it. That's not true. The price tag is not in our obedience. The cost of it is not in our obedience, but in the suffering of Christ on the cross. Okay? So it's not about our own obedience and false piety and beating up of our flesh to try and make this thing costly to us. No, we have nothing to pay to God. Absolutely nothing that we could ever pay to God. We can only say, thank you, Jesus. Okay? So, the thief on the cross did absolutely nothing for Jesus. Like zero. And yet, he entered heaven on that day, not by cheap grace, but by free grace. Cheap grace, no, but by free grace. So that's the distinction. Now, let's go to the third case. To hear again the matter of cause and effect in salvation. This one is important to me. And also is one of the areas that are going to be arguing a lot with people. That's why I'm going to the three places. Let's go to X 13. 46 to 48. Acts 13, 46 to 38. Luke records and says, Then Paul and Parambas grew bold and said, they were speaking to the Jews, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Luke says, as many as were appointed to eternal life are they who believed which means they were appointed to eternal life before they believed. Right? But many want to read it backwards and say those who believed first are they who were then appointed to eternal life. Making faith the condition that one meets in themselves before God appoints them to eternal life. And that is a gross abuse of the text. Election and all of salvation are not based on foreseen faith, but on God's grace alone. Appointed to life is a sovereign and eternal decree to say, election by grace unto salvation. Those appointed, ordained, elected, chosen to eternal life, believe as evidence of their appointment 
and not as cause of the appointment. That's my point. And so the sons of Eli could not repent because they were not appointed to believe, appointed to repent. They were appointed to death. The child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And you know that is spoken of the Lord Jesus also in exactly the same manner. Now we go to verse 27, and that will be the closing of our message, the end of the law. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an effort before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? What is or was the house of Eli's father? That is the house of Levi. That is the house that God chose and gave the priestly role and function. Okay? That's the house of Eli's father. In the context, it's the Levites. So what has the house of Levi done? as represented by Eli and his sons. Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? You're taking all the sacrifices to yourself, and you're honoring yourself. Why have you treated me? And my sacrifice, me and my sacrifice, with such contempt, you kick at my sacrifice and my offering. Given that I appointed you to minister to me by these very things, you are now getting the best of all the offerings and the fat and are honoring your sons more than me you're honoring the mediators of the law more than me. That is saying the priesthood of the law is inferior to Christ and is supposed to be subservient to Christ. But that is the problem that many do not understand that Jesus is actually superior to the priesthood of the law and that Jesus does not need help from the priesthood of the law and its covenant. They do not say, the law keepers, the Ten Commandment keepers, or breakers, they do not see that the Holy Spirit is superior to the Ten Commandments when it comes to the matter of obedience. When you break the law, you are condemned. When you break the instruction of the Holy Spirit, you are not condemned. See the difference? So the Ten Commandments, as I said, will never make you right before God. But the fact of the sacrifice, when 
properly given will make you holy and righteous because it answers fully and perfectly to God's wrath and justice because of your sin. You see the difference? So this thing of separating the Ten Commandments from the covenant of the law and the priesthood of the law is honoring Moses more than the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Jesus is not the new and better priesthood of the covenant of the law. He is establishing a totally different covenant in his own blood with its own precepts. Okay? So what will you do with this Lord? Verse 30. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. That is what God said to them when he established and chose the house of Levi to be his ministers. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall lightly shall be lightly esteemed. Question. But this is where people stumble. But it seems like God does not know what's really going on. Was God disappointed? Was he surprised by the law and his priesthood for what they did or failed to do? Was God frustrated with the law? And was God actually changing his mind and wondering if he should have done things differently much earlier on if he only knew better? This is where if people do not know the gospel and its progressive revelation and do not know the revelation of the great mystery as Paul calls it in Ephesians, the mystery that was hidden, but it has now been made manifest and people do not really appreciate God's sovereignty, they will say, see, God does not know everything. He lands as he goes. And so he has to correct some things. Thus Jesus was the answer to the Lord's failure as a backup plan. But in a reactive way, God had to speak to Jesus and say, Jesus, you see, Adam failed, the law failed. Could you please go and help me with this? That's foolishness and it drives me crazy. <laughs> First, the law failed because it was designed to fail. Because righteousness could not come by the law. That's Galatians. If righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. Adam failed because he was designed to fail. He was the man of the dust. He was created good, not for salvation, but for his purpose. Because people, when they seek good, they're like, oh, he was born. No. He was created good for his purpose. To fall. That's the goodness of it. Secondly, the scriptures declare to us and say, known to God from eternity are all his works. So God knows the end from the beginning. Because of him, 
and through him and to him are all things. He has ordained all things and his purpose shall stand, shall prevail. He does all his good pleasure and none, as Job said, will frustrate his purpose. So the failure of the law was part of God's purpose. Your failure to be righteous in yourself was also part of God's purpose. You made a lot of resolutions for the 2023 year and you've already failed in 90% of them. It was not by accident God's purpose because only the riches of his glorious grace in Christ shall be praised in the salvation of men. In every way that you and I need salvation, only God's name shall be praised. So our projects at different levels of life, even eternal, are going to be frustrated. Okay? Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming that I'll cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will be so that there will not be an old man in your house. God is speaking to Eli and says, The days are coming that I'll cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house. In other words, I will bring an end to the house, not just of Eli, but to the whole house of Levi. I'll cut off the arm I'll also take out the power that is in the house of Levi. The power to do that. To do what? The power to condemn. Because Levi is Eli's father's house. So the days are coming when God will bring an end to the covenant of the law, which Levi was the mediator. The law even though given by God, could not honor God by reason of the weakness of its priesthood that was sinful and the people that were sinful. And so it has to be removed. The whole thing has to be removed because it is not honoring God the way that God wants to be honored. So the days are coming. And God said, they will not an old man left in your house, there will not be an old man to be found in the house of Levi in the days to come, even to serve God. And that to say, the old covenant would not remain forever as to be regarded an old man in God's house. In the days to come, that is in the days of Christ, God would not be approached through the covenant of the law, through its precepts and its priesthood. And this is what I say over and over, that the Old Testament has much teaching that anticipated the end of the law. And yet many professing Christians come and want to argue their moralism and confessions of faith and say, no, the law represents God's moral character, thus it is eternal. Well, God was never under the law. God does not need the law to be moral. 
Yeah? Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he may redeem those under the law. So Jesus was never under the law until he added human flesh. God is never under the law. He is the law unto himself. Whatever happens by him is law. If God decides to kill everybody, that's law. It's righteous. <laughs> if I try to kill just one person, I'm in trouble. Okay? So God was never under the Ten Commandments. Christ only was after he added human flesh to himself. Not these arguments because you're going to be finding people arguing with you. Verse 32. And you see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. So in the fullness of time, Christ Jesus is he who enters into God's dwelling place. He is God's true and final tabernacle. And when Christ shows up, the whole house of Levi, the law keepers, the Pharisees and scribes would consider him an enemy in God's dwelling place. And so they go berserk and seek to kill him. But God repeats this again and says, and they shall not be an old man in your house forever. So there's no arguing with that if God has given you understanding. No old man in your house forever because they shall be a preferred man after God's own heart to do what the law could not do, to give honor to God's name by the giving of the proper sacrifice, the death of, of Christ. Verse 33, you're almost done. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. So all the descendants of Eli's house, Levi's house, the house of Moses and Levi, these are the houses, shall die in the flower of their age. Essentially, God repeating in a different way the end of the law and its commandments. That's the point. And let us see if this thinking is correct. If everything that I've said today is correct. Because if we don't get any more testimony, then someone can come and oppose me and say, you're just making things up. Okay? Let's see what God says. Verse 34. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. In one day they shall both die. In one day is the title of our next message, actually. That's the title of our next message from 1 Samuel 3. In one day, you shall see when the priesthood of the law and its covenant will come to an end. It will come in one day. It will come in one day. They should die as Uriah died. Uriah must die. Eli and his sons must also die. 
Let's see if our interpretation is accurate as far as the gospel is concerned. Verse 35. Then I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I'll, be, I'll build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Is that not the conclusion of the whole matter? That because of the unprofitableness and failure of the law and its priesthood to make anything perfect, God would raise for himself another priest, a faithful priest, an eternal priest, who shall do according to God's heart and mind. He knows the mind of God. This priest knows the heart and mind of God. So this has to be a God-man type priest. The priest who came and said, I must do all the work that my father gave me to do, and my food is to do the will of my father. What would God do for this faithful priest? He said, and I'll build him a sure house, unlike the house of Levi. Unlike the shenanigans and failures and weaknesses of the priesthood of, of the law, this particular priest is he who shall walk before God forever. Christ Jesus. Yeah? And there was an intermediate fulfillment of this when the priesthood was taken from Abiathar a descendant of Aaron's son, Ithamar, and given to Zadok, descendant of Aaron's son, Eleazar. You're going to have to underline this. First Kings 2, 26 to 27, we have maybe three, four minutes. First Kings 2, 26 to 27. And to Abiathar the priest, the king, that is Solomon, said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at So that was the intermediate fulfillment. And prophecy is like onion. It is layers, multi-layered, and can have multiple fulfillments. But ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment is always in Christ Jesus. So we go to Hebrews, Hebrews 7. The writer of of Hebrews says, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, if if in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment as was with the priesthood of the law, but according to the power of an endless life. Remember, the priest that God promises in 1 Samuel 2 is going to be a forever priest. And so this one is coming from a different tribe because the tribe of Levi has failed. It's failed. And he comes with the power of an endless life. For he testifies, verse 17, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's an annulling, a setting aside of the former commandment of the former covenant because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The annulling of the former covenant, the law is what God was saying to Eli and saying, there shall not be an old man to be found in your father's house, you have been fired. I'm just going to keep you until the Christ comes. But what you see, if you know how to read these things, is a constant repetition of the same thing. The law is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. We have a ton of messages like this. Okay? And the reason is given for the cancellation of Eli and his father's house. Here is the reason. This is the reason why God was upset with Eli and his house and the priesthood of the law and everything that they represented. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. And that is Christ Jesus through which we draw near to God. Christ Jesus, the forever priest, has now been brought in, and that is a better way to approach God, not through the shenanigans of the sons of Eli. Okay? Also, let's skip to verse 23, still in Hebrews 7. Also, there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. Why? Because they were sinners. Like the sons of Eli, the Lord put them to death. The covenant of the law was put to death. That's what God is preaching. It was put to death. It is not continuing. So the sons of Eli could not repent because it was God's intention right from the beginning that the law and its ministry would and should come to an end. That is the bigger story preached by the sins and unrepentance of the sons of Eli and their subsequent death, the death of the covenant of Mount Sinai. But he, verse 24, Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. His priesthood cannot be changed, cannot be given to other people from the line of David or he continues forever because he is a perfect priest. And that is the priest that God has given us. God's faithful priest. And by this priest, God has been honored 
the fat of the sacrifice was given, was offered correctly and was accepted. And we have been accepted in that sacrifice. And this priest, unlike the priesthood of the law, ever lives to make intercession for his people. Why do we need intercession? Because we are still sinners. Okay? So that's the story. That's the gospel testimony from the story of Eli and his sons. And when we get to the next chapter, I'm going to be vindicated even more. I swear to God, I'm going to be vindicated more. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful things that the Lord has revealed. Let us pray to thank the Lord for all that he has given us. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for these many words. I pray that your people have understood the simplicity of the message, essentially to say, because of the weakness of the law and its pursuit, you have given us a better hope by which we approach, the better hope through Christ Jesus, our forever priest. And the sacrifice has been given correctly and accepted on behalf of his people. We have been accepted in the beloved. We thank you, Lord. We honor you for all things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good people. You had it not from me. There's no old man left in the house of Eli. If you find an old man, you're in the wrong house. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.